this traveling man was a victim to exploit. So they attacked him. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid. So they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and help. And so he took care of him. One group abused him. One group neglected him. But the Samaritan loved him. So the application would be, on that model, are you a taker or a talker or a giver? So we don't don't know. We should just close in prayer. (laughs) If if, If that's the level that the story works on, we could stop there, couldn't we? And we've had the shortest sermon that we've ever known. I hope you'll realise there's more to it than that. Well, you, you, you will hopefully by the end. Some commentators, next slide, see this as an allegory. This has really amused me during the week, this. There are so many people in church history who have come to this parable. For instance, they, and these, these are good Bible, gospel-hearted people. Jerusalem, in this story, represents the Garden of Eden. Jericho is this wicked world. And the robbers who come and attack this man is really the devil and his wicked demons who mug him spiritually and leave him half spiritually dead. The wounds are really our sins. Rebellion against God. And then the priest and the Levite come who represent the law and the prophets who can do us no good. But the good Samaritan is none other than Christ himself who comes to heal us. He binds up our wounds. He puts us on his own donkey. He brings us to the inn, which is the church. And he appoints the innkeeper, who's the Apostle Paul, to look after his people. He pays two coins. One represents baptism. One represents communion. The two sacraments. And he promises to come back and pay the bill. What could that possibly mean but the second coming? And when you, get, when you get to the end of it, that just, is that what it means? Is that what Jesus is trying to tell us, that sort of picture language? Well, it's a load of nonsense, in my opinion, all of that. But there's some great people in church history who've tried to make this parable mean all sorts of unusual things. Is this story, then, a morality tale to inspire us or a complicated picture for us to marvel at? Well, the truth is actually, I think, that even though this story is very familiar, it is also quite unfamiliar. Many people don't know, for example, that Jesus told this story in response to a specific question. Often people know the story from verse 30. But what about the four or five verses prior to that? And the context that gave rise to Jesus telling the story. If we're going to understand what this story is meant to teach us, we need to see, first of all, that Jesus tells it in response to a specific conversation that's going on with a man who is called, in verse 25, an expert in the law. And the answer that Jesus gives, and the statement in verse 37 of go and do likewise, is made to him, the expert in the law. This is a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer. 
And this story is told as part of that conversation. So I want to um, try and see this from the perspective of this man, the lawyer, who asked this question. Okay? I think it would be really helpful. We've just got some really simple points to wait through. It would be really helpful if you can have your Bible open, if you've got one. Page 1042, Luke chapter 10. And uh, you can follow some of the detail. I want to say three very obvious things about the man, the lawyer, and then three simple things about the story. So that makes six things. And, we've, and, and that'll be great. And, that, and that'll be a good, good time. So three things about the man. First of all, oh, go on, Rich. Next. The lowest question. Verse 25. Look with me. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing I want you to notice is that his focus is on doing something. The reason I pick up on that is that the very passage ends with Jesus saying what? Go and do likewise. So the whole passage, if this was a bookshelf with two bookends, it's kind of bookended by the subject of doing, isn't it? What must I do? Go and do this. And more than that, verse 25, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. What does he say? Do this and live. So the theme, the focus of his question, the whole passage is framed, bookended, in terms of doing. One other thing, though, is that the question he asked doesn't really make sense when you think about it. It is a contradiction. When did anyone ever inherit something by doing something? Normally you inherit because you're in the family, don't you? Mostly. I have a will, actually. Nowhere does it specify that my kids have to fulfill some condition to inherit whatever is left after they've spent it all during my lifetime. Some of my children are here. Rob gets the car, but only if he climbs a mountain first. Maybe Ben gets the house, but only if he runs a couple of marathons. Sam gets the business, but only if he's quiet for a few weeks. (laughs) The girls get the cash, but only if they complete some sort of great puzzle. It's a ridiculous question. How can you do something to inherit something? Just keep that in mind. Um, Because I I think that's a very significant clue. Secondly, I'm going to leave that alone. This man was a two-faced man. We all know what that means, don't we? I just want to dwell on this a little bit with you. This is really important. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to do what? Are you all there? He stood up, he cleared his throat to test Jesus. He's got some nerve, hasn't he? I can take Jesus, son. Watch this, everyone, watch this. (coughs) Teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's playing games. He's not asking because he cares about eternal life, is he? 
he starts with a kind of apparent respect, teacher. But in his heart, he thinks Jesus is a joker. He's trying to trip him up. Let me just pause with you. We've got to remember a few things here. This man is an expert in the law. That doesn't mean he's like a solicitor, like we would think of nowadays. You know that the Jewish nation is really founded to a large degree on the first five books of the Bible. Genesis to Deuteronomy, often known as the Torah. These books contain some history, but many laws. There are different kinds of laws. We've been talking about this, uh, some of those recently. Some of those laws are civic laws. And that's because Israel was a nation state. So some of those laws governed uh, their life together as citizens in a nation. Some of those laws were ceremonial laws to do with their religion and include laws about ritual purity and the whole sacrificial system. But then there's also moral law. So you could think about the Ten Commandments being part of that moral law. And that really transcends them as a nation. You would put the Ten Commandments in this bracket. And these, these laws cover moral behaviour, don't they? This is how you should live. What happened was that their religious leaders, over the years, down the years of history, had to interpret what these laws meant. And how you would apply them in different situations. And there were huge volumes written. What does this law mean? And would we be breaking it if we did this? And maybe if we did... And what does it mean to work on the Sabbath or not work? And you, there, were, there were some bizarre things that these teachers came up with over the years. Big debates by clever people. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, there were men like this man, who was described as an expert in the law. They knew it inside out and upside down. These were legal people. Their job was to be black and white about almost anything and everything. And to explain every detail. This question that he asked is one, actually, that was debated by rabbis a great deal. And in many ways, it's a good question. We might rephrase this question nowadays. What do I need to do to be sure that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? We, we, we might rephrase it like that. To them, the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a very important question, isn't it? But I want you to notice that he is asking here a very good question with a very bad attitude, isn't he? You just get the impression that this man isn't interested in really seeking the truth. He's just trying to involve Jesus in a debate that he thinks he can win. Maybe to make himself look good as an expert of the law. Just put yourself in this scene. There's a crowd of people here. And here, on the one hand, is an uneducated peasant carpenter from a backwater town called Nazareth. So ridiculously backwater that someone would later say, does anything good ever come out of Nazareth? It's like being born in Rotherham. I don't really mean that. <laughs> or Wigan. 
But the people seem to want to follow him. And listen to him with astonishment. He's never been to university. He's not an expert in the... I mean, he's not an expert in the law. I've been to school to study all this stuff. I know inside out and back to front. Who are you? On the other hand, you've got 2,000 odd years of history that this man knows intimately. And he sees Jesus as an upstart. And what this guy's really doing is standing up, I think, in a very arrogant way and saying, listen, mate, what's the bottom line of your teaching? People like to listen to you. What have you got that we haven't got? What do you say, teacher, that I need to do to inherit eternal life? You set yourself up as a teacher, but what's the deal? How does your teaching square with this marvellous historic sense of superiority that we have. Moses we know, history we value, being Jewish we're proud of. What I want to know is, who the heck are you? That's really what he's saying. He's wanting to see if Jesus says something inconsistent with what the Bible says. If Jesus answers this question with a something that doesn't fit with the Torah, this man is ready to jump on him and expose him as a blasphemer. But if he agrees with the Torah, he's going to stand back and puff his chest out and say, what have you got that we haven't got? Can you see what he's doing? He's trying to trip Jesus up. If he agrees with him, then you don't need to listen to him. Just listen to your normal teachers. If he says something different, he'll expose him as a blasphemer. What this man is bringing to this party is a desire to either expose or ridicule Jesus. He's not asking because he wants to know. I think he already knows the answer to his question. He's checking out Jesus' credentials. And I would say it is a very dangerous thing to stand up in public, clear your throat and take Jesus on. Wouldn't you? He doesn't know what he's dealing with, does he? Thirdly, he was determined to prove he was right, wasn't he? Actually, this man asked two questions. His first question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has a little joust with him, as we'll see. And then in verse 29, it says, he wanted to justify himself. Or, he wanted to prove that he was right. So he asked Jesus another question. Let's just pick through that. Jesus here is very wise and very gracious. He knows this man's devious heart. He could have pulled him to pieces and publicly made a fool of him. He could have done it on the basis of just going to Leviticus chapter 19. We haven't got time to do that today. If you want to talk to him about that after it. Jesus could have ripped him to shreds. But he doesn't. He responds to him on his own terms. 
he has a little joust with this guy on his own patch. He's an expert in the law. You're an expert in the law, Jesus says. What do you think? How do you read the law? What is written in the law? How do you read it? What does all your great learning tell you about what you should do to inherit eternal life? Just sum up for me your bottom line, your religion's bottom line, the Torah's bottom line. It's a great question, you know, because it emphasises the fact that God's word is really important. What is written in the law? Jesus says. It's, it's interesting that, isn't it? The law is not some changing, arbitrary thing. It is written. What's written in the law? How do you read it? So now we have this expert lawyer who's come to quiz Jesus, being quizzed by Jesus. And what does he do? Well, he quotes what he knows. He quotes two verses from the Old Testament. If you, you, you might have a little footnote there in the Bible. The first part is known as the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, I think we have to use our imagination a little bit. I think there's something slightly cringeworthy about this. And I, I think that there might even have been giggles being suppressed in this group as this conversation develops. This guy's cleared his throat. He stood up. He's tried to look as though he's asking a really great question. And then Jesus makes him answer it himself. And then Jesus says, that's the right answer. Well done. He's trying to look clever. I had a friend at uni who told me a story once that has come into our family as a sort of folklore saying. He had a younger brother and they were sitting in the kitchen once with their dad, just two of them, two brothers. And you know our brothers can say things that just humiliate you. So he starts telling this really long story. And the dad's not really listening and the brother's sitting there just waiting to humiliate him. And when he got to the end of this really long story that he thought was quite interesting, that nobody else was interested in, and the other brother just turned to him and he just went, Splendid. What a put down. Just splendid. And it's become a bit of a joke in our house. When someone says something really boring, you can bet your bottom dollar someone will just go, Splendid. Because it's just a put down. You thought that was interesting. That was really boring. And there's a sense in which this conversation has gone like that's the ultimate put down. The man stands up, tries to look clever. Jesus makes him answer his own question and goes, that's the right answer, well done. And it's, he's not a bit rude to him, but it's almost like, splendid, well done, you're an expert in the law. Good for you. It happens with text as well sometimes, doesn't it? Have you ever sent a really long, intricate text to someone? And then four hours later, they reply and they just put a K. And you go, thanks for that. I'm not sending you a text anymore. 
You know, it's like it's the same thing, isn't it? Splendid. Thanks for that. It took me about ten minutes with my fat fingers to type that in, and you've just gone, okay. I think that's what's going on here. This guy's interrupting, trying to ask a pompous question to make himself look good. And Jesus just turns it around and makes him look a bit silly. If it stopped there, the man would look like an idiot. But Jesus doesn't leave it there because he says, you have answered correctly. Verse 28. Do this and you will live. He says to the man, that is really great. Your religion is excellent. Your understanding of the law, as an expert in the law, is first class, mate. You really do seem to grasp the overall point of the whole Torah. Now, go and do it. Today, tomorrow, next week, every day, all day, all your life perfectly and you'll live I bet you could have heard a pin drop can you see what Jesus has done this cocky fellow self-righteous twit really tries to take Jesus on and Jesus says go and do it and you'll live this is what your own religion teaches you go and do it One commentator says this. Let me read to you. It's a bit small print this. We must love God with all our hearts. We must look upon him as the best of beings. In himself most amiable and infinitely perfect and excellent. He is the one whom we lie under the greatest obligation to both in gratitude and interest. We must prize him and value ourselves by our elation to him. We must please ourselves in him, devote ourselves entirely to him. Our love to him must be sincere, hearty, fervent. It must be a superlative love, a love that is as strong as death, but also an intelligent love. And such as we can give a good account of the grounds and reasons of. It must be an entire love. He must have our whole souls, and must be served with everything that is in us. We must love nothing besides him, but what we love for him and in subordination to him. That's before we even start on the neighbour part. Do we love God with our whole heart, soul, strength and mind all the time, every day, perfectly? Now the guy is not embarrassed because he's answered his own question. He's now exposed because he's just established publicly in front of all his friends that what his own religion demands of him, he can't do. Ever felt hot under the collar? Wish I'd never started this now. (laughs) (laughs) He's tried to trap Jesus and Jesus has trapped him. He's exposing him. Where are you going to turn, Mr. Expert in the Law? What are you going to do now? How will you face your failure to do the very things that your own Lord says you must do? Who's going to help you? How are you going to gain eternal life and go to heaven when the bar is that high and you're down here somewhere? Do you get the sense that this man here has a choice to make? He could have said, oh man, Jesus, 
How on earth am I going to fulfill that? I haven't done that. I can't do it. I need serious help. But instead, what does Luke say? Verse 29. He wanted to justify himself. So we ask another question. Are you getting the point now? He wanted to prove that he was right. Jesus has just graciously exposed his inability, our inability, and he wants to prove that he's right. We know what that feels like, don't we? It's an old trick, isn't it? If you're in a debate and you get stuck to say something like, well, it depends what you mean, doesn't it? You need to define your terms. It really means you don't know what you're talking about and you're just going to stall for time, doesn't it, really? So this man, to justify himself, what is really incredible, I think, about this is that he passes over the loving God bit, doesn't he? It's like he's saying, yeah, yeah, I get the God bit. Obviously, I love him with all my heart. But what I'm really interested in is who's my neighbour? Christ is wanting him to see his inability and confess his need. And he's looking for a loophole. He wants to excuse himself. He wants to minimise the damage. He wants to get himself off the hook. So he asks a question to justify himself. The conversation's got to go somewhere, hasn't it? Otherwise he's going to look like an idiot. But Jesus has cornered him. And so this man shifts the spotlight onto a technicality. And who's my neighbour? That was another question the rabbis debated. We haven't got time now to look at Leviticus, but Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that the man quotes, could be referring just to your fellow Jew. But later on in the same chapter, verse 35, if you're taking notes, doesn't say that at all. Jesus could have ripped this guy apart from that chapter alone, as we've said. But Jesus isn't interested in having a technical debate. So let's just summarise. This passage is about doing. The man who started it is a self-righteous man who is very confident and secure in his religious worldview. And he's determined to prove himself right and Jesus wrong. So let me ask you now, why does Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan? Is it just a nice story to inspire us on how to be nice? It's told to a two-faced man who thought he was right. Jesus told this story to an unbeliever who was proud, self-righteous, full of himself. This man is, I'm alright Jack, but who on earth are you? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to a man like that. I would suggest now that Jesus tells this story to pop his bubble. This story is calculated to shatter his worldview and bring him to his senses. It's designed to shock him and his hearers. 
which is the complete opposite of how it's normally used as a story to just inspire us to be nice people. Are you with me? He wanted to justify himself and asked Jesus, and who's my neighbour then? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So I said three things. Oh, put that down. Next, a man in need. Here we go. Let's look at the story then, and we'll see if we can unpick it along these lines. This was a very dangerous journey. I don't think this is a true story, but um, a man's, you can assume the man's Jewish, I suppose. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, I'm told that, um, I don't know if, there's maybe a map in the back of the Bible. I don't know if you can picture Israel, Dead Sea, uh, Jerusalem, sort of west, and you would go down to Jericho. Jerusalem was above sea level, Jericho was below sea level. It was a difference of about 3,000 feet and about 70 miles. And it was known as a very dangerous road to travel on because robbers would hide along the way. Lots of little caves and nooks and crannies, very steep. Um, it was notorious. Um, it was called in olden times the Bloody Way. So th- this is a real road. There was a Roman fort apparently that was meant to protect people from bandits. Jesus says this man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on this bloody way when he fell into the hands of robbers. Surrounded by thieves. And they're not petty thieves, these are they. Just look at what they do to him. I mean, it's not like stick him up, give us your wallet. They steal his stuff. They take even his clothes. They strip him. They beat him gratuitously. And then they leave him half dead. I mean, these are not petty thieves. These are violent, thuggish robbers. And I think Jesus means to provoke a sense of real horror. We should recoil at that, shouldn't we? This man's done nothing wrong. And he's the victim of mindless thuggery. Is that a word? You know what I mean? It'll do. And who's going to help him? He is literally going to bleed to death. Secondly, a man in need. That's not the right slide, is it? The next point is a bunch of excuses. We don't know what the excuses were, but these two guys passed by a priest, it says, by chance. Um, happened to be going down the same road. Apparently, priests who worked in Jerusalem in the temple would do like a stint. But often, they lived in Jericho. I didn't know this. So, it's, this story is very realistic in one sense. That the priest and the Levite have been working in the temple for maybe a couple of weeks. And now they're going home, back to Jericho, where they live for a couple of weeks, I don't know, two weeks on, two weeks off, whatever, I don't know how it worked. But this road would be a familiar path. We could make a whole long list, couldn't we, of the excuses. Been working for two weeks, promising we'll have to be home by six o'clock on Friday. 
don't want to mess about lingering here. Deserve a bit of rest after all. I've been busy. There's people expecting me. I don't want to put my wife to anxiety when I get home. Plus, it's not safe to linger here, is it, after dark? But this man's obviously had his head kicked in. I don't want to linger around. There must be bandits. Anyway, the guy looks like he's going to bleed to death anyway. I'm not sure with my lack of first aid ability I could even help him. He's probably passed it. Maybe I could have helped him if a wife was here. She would know what to do. Putting a bandage on and stopping the bleeding, but I'm not really sure. Plus the fact, if I try and help him and someone else comes, they might think I've done it. I don't want to be accused of the crime. Also, I've only just had my wages for the last two weeks I've done, and if I get my wages robbed, or worse, maybe they thought it would make them ceremonially unclean. Maybe they thought someone else will come who's got more time than me, and they'll do it. The Samaritan has an extra excuse, you know, because he might have been thinking, this fellow's a Jew. Would he do it for me? If I was lying in a pool of blood at the side of the road, no. So should I help him? Do you know the golden rule that Jesus says in the Gospels? Do to others what, you, what they would do to you. No, he doesn't say that, does it? Do to others what you would have them do to you. Do you get the difference? We often twist that around. Oh, I'm not helping him, he wouldn't help me. But, but this is doesn't think like that, does he? I don't know, it's a story. I don't think they're real people, so we can guess at their excuses. I think the point is, these two guys, who were religious guys, what did they not have? Love. And then there's a shocking twist. That's our third point. <laughs> there we go. I don't know, it's <laughs> all mixed up, actually. A shocking twist. Good stories often come in threes, don't they? I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good story, but Goldilocks and the three bears comes in threes. What about the three little pigs and the big bad wolf? The first one builds his house with straw. Big bad, I'll huff and I'll puff. Second one builds his house in wood. The big bad wolf comes, I'll huff and I'll puff. The third one, he builds his house with bricks. And the big bad wolf can't huff and puff and blow his house down. They come in threes, don't they? Even kids understand that. We have it in jokes. To, did you hear the joke about the Englishman, the Scotsman, the Irishman? We do it all the time, don't we? In, though, in that case, with great respect and apologies to the Irish people in our congregation, it's often the Englishman or Scottishman do something innocuous and the Irish person does something silly. This way, it's the other way around, isn't it? The first two don't stop. What are the crowd expecting? There's a third guy going to come and he's going to do the right thing, isn't he? It builds up in threes. But just, just so we can get the shock of this, imagine telling the joke about the Englishman, the Scotchman and the paedophile. That would be different, wouldn't it? I'm not saying the Samaritan is a paedophile. I don't think the text warrants that. But the shock... What about the Englishman, the Scotchman, and the terrorist? What Jesus is doing here is, the priest comes along, he passes by on the other side. The Levite comes along, he passes by on the other side. They're already teed up. Who's going to do the good action? And who is it? A Samaritan. Samaritans were hated. 
Do you know the Jews would travel around Samaria rather than get Samaritan dirt on their shoes? One Jewish teacher said that to eat a Samaritan's bread was to eat pig's flesh. If you wanted to insult someone really badly, just call them a Samaritan. Do you know that in John's Gospel, they called Jesus a demon-possessed Samaritan? It's the worst they could. Give us your best. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. (laughs) This man hated Samaritans so much that in verse 37, he couldn't even describe him like that, could he? When Jesus says, which of these three men was a neighbour? The one who had mercy on him. He can't even say the Samaritan. Two men had no love and one man did. Two men who were religious and knew all the rules had no love and one man who was a social outcast did love and see how he loved. He doesn't ask the question the lawyer asks, does he? No, I wonder, is this man my neighbour? Does he, is he my neighbour? What did the priest say? I'm not supposed to. He doesn't stop and think, is this man my neighbour, does he? What does he see? The man's in need. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't need any qualification. It isn't relevant whether the man's a friend or an enemy. He's in need. He gives up his own supplies. Maybe even tearing his own clothes to wrap him around with bandages. And generously as well. What does it say? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Was he just like sieving it out so he wouldn't give him too much? No, he, he doesn't care. I'm going to be. I'm going to generously lavish the little makeshift. I haven't got a first aid kit, but I've got some oil. I've got some wine. The wine will sterilise it. The oil will soothe it. And then he puts him on his own donkey, and he walks. He takes the guy to an inn. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Putting aside his own plan, I don't know what he had planned for the day or the week or whatever, he puts aside his own plans and he cares for him all night. How do I know that? Well, what does it say? Verse 35, the next day. He's actually taken this man to an inn and stayed with him all night, nursing his wounds caring for him tenderly. The next day, he pays the bill, gives the guy two coins, two denarius. That probably would have been enough for maybe two or three weeks' worth of care in the inn. And then he promises, I'll come back and I'll give you the rest. What do you see when you see the activity of this Samaritan man? Let's shout some adjectives out. What do you see when you read that account of the Samaritan Shout out some words for me. Generosity. Kindness. The extra mile. Unselfishness. Good. Compassion. It actually says that, doesn't it? When a Samaritan's travel came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The word is compassion. Is it just generosity? It's 
Super generosity, isn't it? Let me try and make the point. You know, I once bought a copy of The Big Issue from a guy in town. I thought I'd done my bit for the homeless. Actually, we had some homeless people who slept in our church over Christmas. That was quite a nice thing for us to do as a church. On the other hand, it was really the council and they did pay our expenses, so it wasn't that kind, really, on our part. I have sponsored a few people as well to do things. Entered a few raffles. I only tend to do raffles, though, when the prizes are okay. So you don't really want to waste waste money if the prize isn't after you you get the point listen have I done this have you done this you you might say well I love my family I'd do anything for them sure you would this guy wasn't family he was a sworn enemy And then even in some rare case, someone did do something like this for a sworn enemy. Does anyone actually live like this? All the time? Every day? I'll tell you, I've done this sort of thing all the time, every day. Total generosity, unlimited kindness, no strings attached, all day long, every day. Do you know who for? Me. But have I loved other people like that? Have I echoes like for you? Listen, this is the point of the story. This man said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Do this all the time, every day, perfectly. We tell this story, give to charity, share things, be a good Samaritan. All those things are good, but don't confuse that with this guy. This guy is in a different league, isn't he? He is given unlimited generosity to a complete stranger with no strings who is his sworn enemy. Jesus says, now you go and do the same. Jesus very skillfully turns this around, doesn't he? The man was asking, who qualifies to be my neighbour? I want to know the terms. Jesus says, I don't want to talk about that. I I want to talk about neighbourliness. I don't want to debate who is worthy of your love. I want to speak to you about the quality of your love. I don't want to talk about everyone. I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk about you. See what Jesus has done? If he was hot under the collar before, he's positively sweating now, isn't he? Look at the question Jesus asked him. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? One writer says, this is a most dexterous way of putting the question. I thought that was an understatement. What a dext- it changes the question from, who should I love as my neighbour, to... Who is the person that really shows the kind of love that God requires? And this poor man 
is forced to condemn the best of his own religion and praise and command the most hated Samaritan outcast. He can't even bring himself to say his name. The priest and the Levite couldn't even help their own kind and the Samaritan helped his enemy. According to Jesus, the question we must answer is not who is my neighbour, but to whom can I be a neighbour? And I want to suggest to you that the point of this story is that none of us can live up to that unless, like this man, we change the terms. If the standard is perfection all of the time, the bottom line is that you and I are utterly lost. It isn't that the law is bad. The law is utterly brilliant and beautiful. The problem is we can't live like this because we're sinners. And the beauty of the story is not that it's an allegory of salvation. It is first and foremost a brutal exposure of human frailty because no one truly lives like this. Except one. The beauty of the story ultimately is found in the fact that even though, like this man, we are spiritually bankrupt and helpless, there is one who loves us, who goes out of his way, who puts aside his own comfort, who uses his own riches to pay our debts, who pours his healing grace and love into our undeserving, self-centered lives. The point of the story is not for you to go away and try to be the Good Samaritan, but to admit that you can't be like that and to trust Jesus instead of trying to prove that you're right. I wonder what this man did next. As he disappeared and melted back into the crowd. I wonder too, what will you do next? Oh man.